This conversation with Charles Eisenstein is about what the economic systems look like in the more beautiful world our hearts know as possible, which of course is the title of his groundbreaking revolutionary book. And we dive into this. He's also the author of the book Sacred Economics and his understanding of how our own economic system could evolve to create better, tighter community, a greater sense of reciprocity, and bring back a post-tragic version of community and tribe was absolutely beautiful and, in fact, changed the course of my life and changed how I'm going to do business forever. So stay tuned to the end of the podcast to hear how this conversation changed everything. And now, an uninterrupted podcast with Charles Eisenstein brought to you commercial-free by Fit for Service and Arcadia, which Charles is going to be speaking at. So if you're interested, July 14th through 17th in Alpine, Wyoming, go to fitforservice.com slash Arcadia and pay attention to the end of the episode to hear how this conversation evolved how we're going to offer this revolutionary festival. Charles Eisenstein, my brother, good to see you. Yep. Good to be back with you, Aubrey. Yeah, for sure. So this whole festival that we're throwing, Arcadia, Arcadia was another name for kind of a second Eden. And we're really using it to mean the more beautiful world our hearts know as possible, which of course is the name of your incredible book that we've podcasted about and talked about. And the idea is to create also your language, an island of sanity, a place where people can gather together and find those magical synchronicities and anchor the kind of spirit of the more beautiful world. And so obviously you could talk about every aspect of the more beautiful world as you really did in your book. But today I was hoping we could just talk about how one of the fundamental structures of this world is how we exchange goods and services and how this whole thing works, which of course right now is mediated by cash money. But of course, in the more beautiful world, it could have a more beautiful solution. And so that's what I was hoping to mm -hmm. talk with you about today. Yeah, I think that's as, as good an entry point as any to whatever wants to be said through us. Um, yeah, first I'll say, I, like, you know, the um, island of sanity, I'm, I'm feeling like a really good anticipation for this festival. Um, you know, the water rises for many springs and it's the, you know, and, the, and I have the feeling of, of the water table is rising and springs that had been dry are starting to gush forth. People who had been maybe immersed in the matrix are awakening and something else is coming through them and events like this are starting to happen. And, you know, this is, like I just intuitively, not that, you know, everything is perfect or whatever, of but course. it's like that spirit is, you know, the fountainhead of the, of the event. Like I, mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm looking forward to it and I'm happy to invoke that in our conversation today. Yeah. So as far as like uh, economics, I think just even to start with the way that you introduced it, um, about how we conduct transactions, how we provide goods and services. Beneath, so the core of what I call sacred economics, um, it's not the transaction. It's something underlying that, which is the gift. Mm. In, in traditional societies, but even in our own lives to some extent, there are, yeah, there's exchange in some relationships, but there's also relationships where, I mean, you could look at it through the lens of exchange and some anthropologists do or the transaction, but really the way it's experienced is I'm giving or receiving. And it may not be that I receive from the same person to whom I give, mm. or it might be that I give to somebody and receive something very, very different, like the relationship between a child and a grandparent. Mm. a grandparent is going to be giving a lot to the child and what the child gives back to the grandparent, you know, it's not something very tangible, but in fact, maybe it's the child's parents or the society as a whole who is giving to the grandparent in quote exchange for 
what the grandparent did for for the community when they were in the prime of life. So there's there's I, I guess I want to um to really come to sanity. We have to. I'm not saying transcend the the mentality of transaction or exchange, but what I would say is hold that as part of a much bigger picture. Right. And especially at a festival, like just to hope I'm not talking too long, but at a at a festival, like what a fe- like what a festival actually is. It's a special time and place that is separated off from normal life and normal society in which certain conventions are suspended and you're therefore free to experience and express different parts of yourself than are available in normal day-to-day life. So at a festival, it's a it's a really beautiful moment to experiment and like Burning Man does this really well, of course, mm-hmm. but but to experiment with, yeah, how about we operate in another paradigm besides the exchange? Right. Not that exchange isn't beautiful and sacred, but you know, here's a, a different container. It's amazing what that does to the individual when you experience something that goes against the convention of the norm, which is even if you give something to someone, typically you're receiving the 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 wow, the graciousness, the thank you, and you get this immediate feeling. And I remember at Burning Man, we rolled up in our bikes and it was this, you know, music camp and we all got out and we were just dancing our hearts out, just really like giving everything we could. And we could feel the energy of the dance, the dance area that we were in. There's no dance floor. It's all playa, but you feel the energy really like buzzing from our just heart pouring, sweat pouring energy. And we had our, all of our coats in a pile. So we finished, we expelled our energy, the music kind of shifted. <laughs> we take all of our, we take all of the coats out and there was somebody had gifted like three quarters of a handle of Jim Beam, right? Which uh-huh. is not like a big deal, but it was kind of a big deal. We didn't have a bunch of alcohol with us or anything like that. So, and someone just slid it underneath our pile. We have no idea who it was. And we all knew like, oh, wow, this was just a gift from some random person that we'll never know in appreciation of our general energy that we offered to the vicinity. And that like that mm-hmm. one moment, I've never forgotten it. And it shifted something. And hell, it's it's $14 of, of re, you know, I don't know, not probably the best bourbon in the world, but it's $14 of this thing. But it, it, made, a, it made an impact like very few gifts ever have because of the nature of it. Mm-hmm. And so that like that concept is really stuck with me. And I think it speaks to what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. When like there is always some kind of a return on some level. So when you gift, say, to a friend, you give something to a friend, it's not that mysterious how the return happens. Like it's your birthday present, Aubrey, you know, and then on my (laughs) birthday, you're probably going to give me a present or, you know, other people might see me give you a present and they might give me a present or in a community, someone might witness me doing something kind to somebody in the community, and then they're going to want to do something kind for me next year. Like, But there's a mysterious element, too, where you're giving into the beyond. Yeah, You're giving into the mystery. You're putting that, that bottle of Jim Beam under the coats. And then it's like, are you being witnessed? It seems like you're not being witnessed. But actually traditional cultures understood that we are always being witnessed Mm. and that everything we put into the world enters the community of being and comes back to us because we're not really separate from the community of being. So this is what people experience at Burning Man all the time. These marvelous synchronicities, the more you let go of trying to control the outcome, the more magnificent the outcome becomes. Not always easy, not always what you were hoping and expecting, but so often it's beyond what you were expecting. And you realize that your very expectations and hopes were limiting the range of your experience. Yeah. And I don't know if people are listening who are going to come to Arcadia. I'd love to kind of see that, to, 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 to come with that um, openness to the mystery of giving and receiving that and, and of the synchronicities that align themselves when we let go 
of controlling yeah. outcomes and controlling the return. Yeah. You know, I have to, so I have to make a, an acknowledgement that I'm certainly not proud of, but also haven't done anything to change. And I'm like one of those statistics of people who don't know their neighbors, right? And there's, I don't know what the statistic is, but some high percentage of people don't know the names of any of their neighbors. And I'm actually one of those people. I actually knew, I used to know a neighbor, the, you know, because they had a very funny last name and they were particularly friendly and we got to know each other. But now they moved out and I'd have, I don't know the new people. I waved to everybody. Obviously, like I know I can recognize them and their dogs and, but I don't know them. But I wonder, I wonder, even in this scenario where we don't really know each other that well, obviously we could do the traditional thing, which is invite them over. We could have a barbecue. But what would happen if all of a sudden we just went on a campaign where we just put random gifts from, and we have a little gated community. And if we just put little gifts from, um, talk about it like, uh, I won't say the name of my neighborhood, but, but Swirling Brook East, you know, that, that's from your neighbors at Swirling Brook East. And it was just, just a nice mm -hmm. thing. I like, I wonder how the neighborhood would start to think about neighbors in a different way. It feels like if, if that momentum was started, that our little community, even if we didn't know each other that well, we probably would start to want to. And that mystery of it and that kind of idea of like, wow, the neighbors are kind of starting to take care of it. It might really catch just as a thought experiment. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it would be an interesting, uh, you know, culture hack. Um, it could also be one of those things that like makes a little ripple that just dies, dies out again, <laughs> right. simply because, right. you know, I mean, there's a reason why no one knows their neighbors in a neighborhood like yours. I mean, I've been to your neighborhood, you know, it's not the kind of place where you're seeing a lot of neighborhood cookouts, you know, and street no. hockey and stuff. <laughs> no. And, and the reason that, the reason that people, I mean, this is true even of less affluent neighborhoods, you know, it's the reason that people don't know each other is that they don't need each other. Right. Because everybody is sourcing everything they need, at least as far as they know, um, Let's not talk about emotional and spiritual needs now, but <laughs> right, they're right. sourcing everything they need from through technology and through the market. Mm -hmm. So you can get together with your neighbors. You can make that effort. But underneath it, there's, well, why are we really doing this? Mm -hmm. I don't need you for anything. Now, imagine if you're living in a village and everybody's growing food and sharing it and the kids are all playing together and running around outside together. And the only entertainment available, the only music available is what you make yourselves in a group. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to know everybody really well. Sure. Because another thing to know somebody, you cannot just consume together. That doesn't bring out your character. If you're creating together, if you're struggling together, if you're on a sports team together even, mm -hmm. or a theater troupe, or or you're surviving together you're you're then then you're you're like that brings out qualities of the real human being if you're yeah. just consuming together you know like you can say anything and put on any fake persona and it'll fly by the radar because who cares right so so this is like you know speaking of unmet needs like one of our deep unmet needs is the need to belong we actually have a need to know people around us and know their stories and to be anchored to a place, a place. A place is not just a physical landscape. It's a social landscape. And, yeah. and you know, we're missing that so much that, um, you know, that's an endless source of, of misery and addiction. Mm -hmm. And again, like one reason, I, I, just to bring the festival back, one reason that, that, transformational festivals are so powerful is that they at least temporarily offer some sense of belonging, some sense of place, and some sense of co-creation. You know, it's not quite just going to a performance and consuming the festival. You're kind of just even by the way you dress, yeah. you're you're yeah. helping to uh decorate it. Mm -hmm. Um you're you're helping to contribute to the suspension of normality that defines the festival. And mm. so this is, you know, it's a little window um, of a more beautiful world, yeah. uh, of, of a co-creative world 
where joy and fun have a much higher priority than they do normally in our society. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was the impetus for the gift of the Jim Beam under the coats is that we were contributing to that particular music stage by our dancing. Like that made the festival that was, yes, we were consuming the music, you could say, but also contributing and in full reciprocity back to that whole environment by that. And so that was, you know, surely the impetus of the gift. And that's the opportunity at all of these festivals. And I I love how you bring that, the costuming and the, and your energy that you're bringing. And also what you were previously saying, it reminds me, you know, you were privy to uh, a very unique event that we had at Fit for Service. We called it the Elemental Games, where we had five factions representing the five elements. And we actually went into contest with each other, some form of Greco-Roman sumo wrestling or ball throwing or, or mace holding or a variety of different things or, or dance off or all of these different things. But what's interesting is, is out of all of the summits that we've had, that actually bonded us closer with, with each other and also with the, with the people we competed against. Mm-hmm. probably more than anything. And we've done some really powerful things. We've breathed together. We've gone in temescals together. All of this is really effective. And I think one of the reasons why Fit for Service creates such a strong community is we do challenging things together and contribute to each other's, you know, help each other go through challenging times. But that one thing actually stands out to me as the most powerful way in which you know it was our dancing it was our contribution where everybody had to bring from their costuming to their contribution of energy to their spirit of competition to their dance to all of it to actually make this thing real to make it feel like a real a real set of games everybody co-created and contributed and there was an ecstasy there was an ecstasy Mm -hmm. that permutated the whole the whole summit that time and so that is like a really good thing to keep in mind is that when you're building something like that together and competing and, and, and doing all of these things, but in the virtuous way, not in the, you know, win loss zero some way, but competing to create something that's more beautiful. It's mm-hmm. just really powerful. Yeah. I mean, so interesting, you're bringing up competition, you know, which is uh, one of the, of the defining features of economics as we know it, or as it's taught to us. And um, it got me thinking about the deeper purpose or like the, the true purpose or a true purpose of competition, you know, because we, we tend to think of it so much in terms of domination and, you know, division and so forth. But really, um, one thing that competition has been in my life was an opportunity to refine my gifts and to know my capacities and to know my shortcomings because they wouldn't otherwise be visible and also to know what I'm here for. I, I like to go back to my you know days as an athlete. Um, originally, I think I, you know, I'm, I'm fast. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be a sprinter. You know, I'm going to be a sprinter. Well, competition disabused me of that notion, you know, and, and it, showed me that what I'm actually good at, you know, which was distance running, like middle distance, distance. Yeah. Um, and if I had, you know, <laughs> like, you know, tried to throw the discus or something like that, <laughs> like, you know, no matter how hard I worked at it, like we're different. Like yeah. human beings are different. You know, I would never have thrown as far as Jay Kislak. Yeah. Uh, and no matter how hard he trained, he would never beat me in a mile. No way. And so competition, um, but then, you know, competing against people who are also good at what you're good at, then like it brings out part of you that is a kind of a training for life because ultimately, and this is um, one thing I was thinking about when I was at, at, when I spoke at that fit for service event, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this is fun and everything, but why are we doing this? And at first I was maybe feeling a little cynical about it, but I asked that question with curiosity why are you guys doing this? And it's like, oh yeah, this is a practice, Mm -hmm. a practice for, for, for life really. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter which, you know, team red or team blue, which one of them wins the competition, Mm -hmm. but it's preparing us, preparing people to exercise that same 
capacity in something that really matters in the world. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I could probably bridge this to economics. I mean, I guess that's actually standard economic theory, you know, like the, the, in uh, a healthy market that's not distorted, which is already asking a lot, the best product wins. The one that mm -hmm. serves the public's needs the most will be chosen uh, and it will prevail and we'll have more of the things that are well-made and serve health and well-being. And okay, we obviously see that there's a lot of problems today where, you know, products that are harming ourselves, harming the environment are very, very successful. And, and you know, I mean, I could go into the economics of all that, um, but I, I guess I just want to affirm, like before we throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, competition can have a, a bad name these days. Yeah. But yeah. All things have their purpose. Yeah, it seems like there's virtuous levels of competition, which are actually inspiring the greatness out of both participants in a way. And I think of it like debate, you know, like you imagine a good debate where two people are really on the virtuous side of it, where they're really trying to explore and, and contest these different ideas. And you just, I see them in my mind being like, that's a great point. I respect that opinion. However, let me counter with this. You know, mm -hmm. have you thought about it this way? And then the other person's like, aha, I hadn't thought about it this way. But the, but the issue I see with that is this. And then they're, they're going back and forth. And at the end, something greater is created, a greater understanding, something greater. And then you contrast right. that with our political debates, which is like, how much shit can you talk about the other person? So you're actually just degrading each other until the person who wins is the one who's the least degraded. And that can be obviously beyond debates. It can be with products. It can be with services. It can be, it's like there's the virtuous side and then there's the degraded side. Right. Yeah. And so in, in a good debate, both parties are actually serving something besides defeating the other one. Right. They're serving the truth. And if you want to just win the debate, then like you can say any kind of unfair thing, like jump on somebody's slip of tongue, try to make them look bad. And yeah, I've won the debate. <laughs> but, you know, like we recognize and are repelled by that kind of viciousness, which like you said, it's like rife in our politics. Right. And, and competition too, like to like invoke the Greek ideal. Um, it's the purpose isn't to defeat the opponent it is to achieve something that might involve defeating your opponent but the greeks would have said it's like some form of beauty mm. and and i'm going to i don't know i'm not sure if it might be a little bit of a stretch but no it's like it's 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 in it's service of arte it's, it's in service yeah. of arte of like of yeah. of the spirit of arte of greatness itself, like right. like how, how are we? It's again, it's in service to that that higher, greater thing, and I think right. economics can be that. How can we create something that's in greatest service to the society at large, to the world at large? Like how can we serve right. something that's higher in our own way, and and that's I think the virtuous level of competition in economics, right? Because because if you if your goal is to win, then you might as well cheat. Right. 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 Which is what we see so, now. Win at all cost right. versus versus a, a bigger perspective bigger perspective of winning. Yeah. Let's shift yeah. gears. Let's shift gears real quick because I want to talk about the difference between it feels like we have a divergence of courses. There's two different options that are kind of on the table right now. One is decentralized uh cryptocurrency. The other is central bank digital currency. Both are a new way to affect transactions and have a monetary vehicle. Uh, just in your mind, you know, what is the, you know, what are the, what are the differences? Obviously some of them might be self-evident, but what are your thoughts when I, when I mention those two different pathways? Yeah. So I'm, I'm first, my first thought is how conversant are the listeners in even what these things are? Like some people are 
probably deep down the rabbit hole and other yep. people are like, what, you know? <laughs> so sure. I feel like we probably would just, I'll just like give a really brief, um, you know, summary of what, so central bank digital currency um, is electronic money. Now, like you say, but, but hold on, like money's already electronic. I mean, except for cash, most of my transactions are already done electronically and tracked, you know, by the financial system and by the government. You know, there's a uh, a record of every transaction. What's the big deal? And what's the difference? The difference is that if we use a central bank digital currency, then we do not need to go through banks or credit cards, uh, debit cards, because everybody has an account with the central bank, with the Federal Reserve. Today, only banks and financial institutions have accounts at the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. So basically, it's like everybody can, can do what only banks can do right now. And that seems like, you know, I mean, you would have no more credit card fees, you know, like, like it would make transactions a lot cheaper and more efficient. There's like a lot of good technical reasons to have central bank digital currencies. But there's danger too, because, and it's called programmable money. And from, so, so basically you could say we have food shortages. Well, you could have rationing built into the money system where you're only allowed to spend a certain amount of money on food or only allowed to buy a certain amount of gas to fight global warming. Or if you have um, say you're a spreader of disinformation, <laughs> your access to funds to, to the ability to create transactions could be curtailed. If you have an alternative, like, for example, cash, which is a central bank currency, you don't need a bank to use cash, uh -huh. um, or you still have banks and you still have other kinds of money, then, you know, it's maybe not so terrible if the Federal Reserve cuts off your your central bank digital currency, but but the real danger is that these become exclusive mm -hmm. and that you have no choice and that therefore your entire economic life is subject to essentially censorship, to, to uh, a, a kill switch. Mm -hmm. So it's part of a program of social control that would install a kill switch on your automobile as well. And maybe even your front door uh, and your internet connection, all contingent on your good behavior as defined by the authorities. So if we had a, like a fully enlightened government that really embodied the will and aspirations and conscious evolution of the entire people, maybe it would be a good thing. But obviously we don't have that. In fact, it would be more the opposite. Mm -hmm. So in this context, central bank digital currencies, I think are really dangerous. So the alternative um, so like a lot of these, these, the problems with our current system of exchange, um, can also be solved by decentralized digital currencies. Uh, for example, um, okay, so Bitcoin is actually a bad example, um, but maybe some of the things built on Bitcoin and then some of the other cryptocurrencies allow instantaneous, almost zero cost transactions across the world. So it solves some of these technical problems, like second mm -hmm. and third generation cryptos are, you know, they've solved a lot of these problems. But, oh gosh, this is going to get even more involved if I'm not careful. Um, <laughs> there's the question, so the, there's this kind of naive ideal of decentralization, which says that we can avoid the messy politics of human decision-making by uh, exporting onto an algorithm monetary policy. And that kind of sidesteps what is one of the fundamental questions of our time, which is how do we make decisions together? How do mm -hmm. we come to agreement? How do we um, implement our, like come to collective choices and implement them so that we create together? How do we come into coherence? So what I'm really interested in it's not decentralization, it's not centralized digital you know, currencies, but it's something, a third thing, 
where we develop uh, new ways of of decision making. And some mm-hmm. of the uh, crypto projects are are really, you know, it's the governance. Um, their their governance issue. They're really developing like innovative ways of of um, I mean, I could call it monetary policy, but of deciding like how much currency should be issued mm. and to whom and mm-hmm. how. Because mm-hmm. money is never value neutral. It's always connected to political and social authority. Always has been, you know, even in the days of gold and silver. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to embrace that truth, that that. The creation of money is a sacred function and return it to that. Um, But anyway, that's like a little snippet of my thoughts on it. I wrote an article about it a month or two ago. But yeah, I mean, this gets really detailed. This could be, you know, we could have like a week long conference on this topic. (laughs) Well, I appreciate how you actually broke it down and gave like a good foothold for us to understand, you know, both different sides and then, then possible third way. I think one of the things that I've seen that I've really loved looking at is there's a there's a social platform called zion that's built on um, bitcoin internet 3 technology it's actually built on transactions of sats that go back and forth and that's how the information is encrypted which is top level encryption you know because that's part of what cryptocurrency is is the encrypted ability so it's safe secure in that way but also in every because it's already working with microtransactions between people that actually, you know, you send it and then you get sent back. So it doesn't actually cost you anything. It's just using that. But you have the ability to send a little more if you like. So let's say someone posts something that you really like, uh, a tweet, for example, that you're like, man, that was really thoughtful. Like that really impacted. Instead of just writing a comment, which with a zero, uh, a zero amount transaction, you just add a little more to that. Like, hey, thank you. Like that was, that mm-hmm. was meaningful. And then the person, the creator could say, hey, Thanks for your comment back. And just, just just as easily as that, just transact a little bit more. So there's a way built in without having to go to like, hey, what's your PayPal? Let me like, right. let me send you five bucks, which is so awkward, you know, <laughs> to do if, you, right. if you're going to do it. But it's just built in and it's built into, it makes things like, I know, I know you're very fond of this kind of idea of like a, a gift, a gift value of, of a video that you create. I know that a video, amazing video that you and uh, my other brother, Ben Stewart made, you know, you just had a donation up there. And so many of the things you do say, yeah, if this, if this is something that you appreciate, you know, here's an opportunity to donate. And it's, it's kind of reevaluating the model. It's what actually, you know, we do with our yoga studios, Black Swan Yoga, they're donation based. And it seems to be like part of the model, but the ability for these, you know, next generation cryptocurrencies or first generation in in this case that I was talking about to just easily be able to allow money to flow back and forth so that we feel like we're supporting each other in kind of a, in a more beautiful way. That got me really excited when I saw how, how easily that could actually happen when deployed Mm -hmm. in a social media platform or a video hosting platform. Yeah. Um, I think that in the digital realm, at least, um, the only natural business model is gift, because it doesn't cost anything to create the second copy of a digital creation, or the third yeah. copy, or the millionth copy, where you know the cost is very, very tiny. Um, whether you know one person downloads my video or a million. It doesn't cost me any more. So how can I charge for that millionth download? Like I've mm. done no more work. Mm-hmm. And and the way that that commerce as we know it has continued in the digital age is through artificial scarcity. Like I could let you have it pretty much for free, but I'm not gonna, I'm gonna keep it. Even mm-hmm. though you taking it, it's not like I have, you know, widgets in a store, you know. Uh, like I'm selling, you know, watering cans in a garden shop and you take it, that's one less that I have. If you download my video, that's not one less video I have on my server. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's so, so to, the, because the natural price point of something with zero 
marginal production cost is zero, content creators, and you know, we're talking the corporations, you know, Disney and so forth, what they do is they create artificial scarcity with you know DRM systems and paywalls, you know, and subscription models and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, withholding something that could be free. I mean, we could have incredible abundance, right? But we create artificial scarcity. And that is the template for the physical material world as well. Our whole society runs on artificial scarcity. We could be in incredible abundance if we stopped trying to control so much. Mm. Like just like the, I mean, like the system of private property, you know, like you, if, if you're very wealthy, you could have the biggest ranch in Texas, but you will have less freedom to freely roam the land than a penniless hunter gatherer would have had 300 years ago. Mm. Like their territory was bigger than the biggest ranch in Texas. Yep. And the reason, and everybody had that freedom. You could go anywhere you wanted. You look over the landscape. I mean, this is this is something that I think about a lot. I'm driving along, you know, beautiful New England landscape. All these inviting lakes and hills and stuff. And actually, I can't go to any of them unless uh-huh. it's a park. They're all off limits, and we are constricted. Right. We're like imprisoned in these like little patches of land. Is it because there isn't much land? No, there's land everywhere. And we don't take up that much space. It's because of a system of artificial scarcity. So the digital realm is offering us kind of an easy on-ramp to a gift economy. Yeah. And, and the way to do it, you know, is, is like you were saying, like you do it by donation or with the system you were describing, you know, it could be like a little tip. Um, and yeah, we would be in abundance that way. What, so how do you respond to, all right, so James Cameron, He's spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to make Avatar two and three. And actually, just as a side note, deeply hundreds appreciate. Of billions, you mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did I say billions? Yeah, hundreds of millions. <laughs> yeah. Hundreds, of, hundreds of billions. Goodness, uh, <laughs> we're not in <laughs> stimulus check land here. All right. Uh, so he's spending hundreds of millions to do this, and it would be such a massive leap of faith to offer that with a donation model. You know, obviously the movie theaters are a different thing. They got rent, they got, you know, seats and popcorn and things like that. So let's leave that aside. But just like they do, you know, if if they just offered it, I think the confidence to be able to create something with a hard cost of that magnitude and not have that kind of artificial digital scarcity, which of course, like you said, as many people will watch Avatar, doesn't cost them anymore. But the feeling like, uh uh-oh, if we don't do this thing, we'll never get our money back. Right. I think that's that's like that's what's tough for the big pieces that are out there. Oh yeah, it would be as you used the exact right words. It would be a leap of faith. Yeah, because our conditioned see we are conditioned to a view of human nature that everybody's trying to get the best deal, and that of course people aren't going to give if they don't have to give. Why would they? That's less for them, and more for me. Why would they do that? So I have to force them to do that. Otherwise, they won't give. Well, that view of human nature, that we are all self-interest maximizing economic machines, that is a story. And in my experience, it isn't true. So I I use this model for for all my online stuff and Mm -hmm. even a lot of in-person stuff. And, And, you know, like it works for me. I mean, I've been doing it for 10 years. You know, I don't charge for any of my online programs. But if there's a donation, you know, people can give zero if they want. And a lot of them do. But a lot of them don't. Mm. Like close to half, if it's like an online course, you know, something really substantial, close to half will donate something. Some of them might just give 20 bucks. But some of them might give a thousand bucks. Yeah. And, you know, it, 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 it's working in the sense that, you know, I've been doing it for 10 years. and. Then when other people encounter the idea, they say, well, I couldn't do that because I have a mortgage to pay, you know? And I'm like, no, you don't understand. This is not a way to make less money. It is not a sacrifice. It is stepping into a different reality, a reality in which human beings, when they receive something they desire to give in turn, and if they are deeply moved by what they receive, 
then they desire to give generously. And so I think that if that if James Cameron, now this is way out of his hands because he's part of an entire, you know, he's a big machine, yeah. Hollywood matrix, you know, with many, many players and so forth. So I don't want to like say that it would be easy to do it this way, but just to say, like, if he did it by donation and the film is as good as the first one, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who would who would give a lot of money. Fuck um, yeah. He might even make more money that way. Yeah. And it and it would take some kind of pioneer like that. Like that would be a move that would have ripples throughout the world. Like, yeah. like that, that thing, if, if, if somebody of that capacity made a movie that was that loved or star Wars, for example, obviously that's part of the Disney matrix. And, you know, I don't know, they don't have the best reputation for such things, but all things are fucking possible. Who knows about reputation? It's probably who the fuck knows. But yeah. if someone took that leap of faith and just did that, I mean, maybe it would, wouldn't do well, but I, I feel, I feel with you. I feel like maybe yeah. it would and if it did it would change the fucking world to do yeah. it at that scale and say the this is the biggest grossing movie of all time and it was based on donations it'd be like right. whoa and and the other thing is you know what about like the single mom who like literally would come out of her grocery money to pay 10 bucks for her and her kids to see this movie yeah. Does James Cameron actually want to take her $10? He doesn't. <laughs> right. You know, right. I've not met the guy, but I know people who know him, you know, like, yep. I mean, he's a human being. He's a feeling, loving human being, you know, just like almost every one of us. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to take money, grocery money from some woman, you know, he would love those people to be able to pay nothing and be compensated for by people who have the means, you know, and, and that's another thing. You go into these things and you realize, like maybe I'll pay a little more because I want this to be shared with the world. And I want to, to subsidize those who are in a different, you know, who are in financial poverty right now. Like we can come together. It's just this shift of perception. We can come together as humanity and live in paradise. Yep. Yeah. It's inspiring. It's inspiring to, to talk to you always, Charles. And and in this case, it's, it's personally inspiring because, you know, as I said, we have Black Swan Yoga Studios that have been donation based for since the beginning, you know, and it's been the suggested donation because people like to have an idea of, well, well mm-hmm. shit, I don't know how much yoga this is 10 bucks. Suggested though, some people pay zero, some people pay 20, but the average we get is $9 and 10 cents. So, mm-hmm. but the, our classes are full and we've been voted best yoga studio of Austin like six out of seven years. It's like so many positive things are happening. So yeah, all right, maybe we're losing 90 cents per customer, but we're probably getting 50% more people showing up. The teachers, like this virtuous system has developed. But even with that success personally, I still feel that little flinch that comes from my conditioning in ways in which, you know, more things that I do could be donation-based. Now, of course, with Onnit, you know, you got bottles and capsules and things and it's hard goods and it's very difficult right. in a hard goods world to have donations but in like in a lot of the different air er- the aspects that we're that i'm dealing with like there's more that i could push into that and it, and i just have this feeling just my whole body feels like if i step into that like the divine is going to meet me the other halfway and and that's like the big mm-hmm. the big availability that's waiting. So I'm, I'm fucking inspired personally and also appreciative that you shared this. Yeah. It's like the divine steps in. You said, it's just like what we were talking about at the beginning, you know, with burning man and the synchronicity, like you are, are really stepping into a different reality. And when you do that, then other people step into it with you. And that old view of human nature as, you know, selfish, self-interest maximizers Mm. is no longer true. Because you're with your trust in the generosity of others, you invite them into that generosity. Mm-hmm. And it's like the thing is, though, like, especially when it comes to, you know, material goods, like, like, you know, your on it product line or whatever. We don't have the infrastructure for a gift based economy. Like, how would you do distribution? Right. And right. we don't also have like the the psychological infrastructure for it. Right. So this means like you can't necessarily um, 
you know, go full on gift and have it work. Right. Um, you know, you have to like, but, but for me, what it is, it's trusting the impulse, keeping my eye on the future. And then and knowing that there's a way to get to that future. Mm-hmm. And then that attunes me to what is the next step deeper into that reality, you know, deeper mm-hmm. toward that future. And, you know, it might be um, whatever that next step is for me, it might be different for you. But usually when you feel that sense of inspiration, there will be something, mm-hmm. you know, that feels a little bold, but it's not beyond, it's not reckless, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's not like we're going to offer all on products for free, you know? Like, yeah. Kettlebells for free. <laughs> kettlebells <laughs> right. donation base. Like shit, yeah. we ran out of kettlebells really fast. Right. Right. So right. yeah. Cause people don't have a conceptual category for that. They, their right. category is price or free, but right. gift is not free. Yeah. It's totally. a totally different mindset. Yeah. You know. Charles. I love seeing you like this, brother. I feel your radiance through the screen and I've known you for years now and always I leave every encounter I have with you feeling more alive and uh, and this is no exception. But also there's another layer of just just really enjoying seeing you full of vitality and and, uh, and full of life force. Uh, it makes me full of life force as uh, as I behold uh, behold you today. So such a pleasure such an honor brother thanks for thanks for yeah, being a thank part you. of this thanks for being a part of not only the the inspiration for arcadia but also the speaker lineup and and your presence there we're gonna we're gonna do something really special there yeah i trust that absolutely thanks everybody for tuning in much love so as i mentioned in the intro this podcast lit a fire underneath me and really i realized that i want to start living and abiding by the principles of economics in the more beautiful world, which as Charles and I discussed, involves a donation-based model based upon trust and the principles of reciprocity. As Lao Tzu said, trust them and they become trustworthy. And so stepping forward into this new paradigm, it's a paradigm of trust. So what does this mean? We're halfway through the ticket offer process for Arcadia. So there are some logistics that we have to figure out. How do we transition halfway through midstream into a donation-based model where half of the tickets are already sold at the current price that we're offering? And we're sorting that out. There's some contractual obligations we have with artists and venues and all kinds of things that are related. But I want you to trust that it is our intention to do the best we can midstream to transition into this elective free will donation-based model because we trust that stepping forward into this model is going to be a way to lead the new paradigm, to actually have fit for service be an act of service to this more beautiful world and starting with Arcadia. So maybe that just means that we change the way that we offer a refund after people have already bought it if they wanted to, in effect, donate less than already what they bought. Or maybe it means that we'll be able to change the different options of donation for what you want to pay for a ticket. We're still figuring that out at the time of the release of this podcast, but we're going to do our best. And then on a go-forward basis, Fit for Service and all of the courses and everything that is not a tangible item that could be resold, I'm going to offer at a donation-based pricing. Now, the reason that I don't want to offer things that have a tangible price that can be resold, of course, then people can just buy them and then resell them. And I do trust people. However, ultimately, there will be that one out of 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 people who could take advantage of a system, set up an eBay account or an Amazon account. And so we have to be also reasonable and mindful that not everybody is in the more beautiful world. But for these events that we can actually offer this that aren't able to be resold. You can't resell your tickets to Arcadia or to the next core event in Sedona. We're switching to a donation-based model and all of the online courses that we offer from here forward. Once again, it's donation from here on out. And I really credit this to one, Charles, for his impeccable philosophy. Two, my own connection with what I believe to be the way things can be what I feel in my own heart. And that's the part of his message, right? It's 
the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. My heart knows that this is possible. I trust people. I trust that this will work. And if it doesn't, then of course, that just means that this model is too early. And potentially that fit for service is not ready to be in existence at this point in time. And so we'll wait and we'll come back when the culture and the consciousness has evolved. But I don't think that's going to be the case. I believe that it's going to work. And so I'm just incredibly grateful that this conversation happened and incredibly grateful to be able to offer this to the world. When I started on it with Joe Rogan, we always had the idea that we wanted to create a globally disruptive entity. And that was not only the products that we offered, but the way that we did it. The return policy where you didn't have to jump through any hoops and you could just say you didn't like it, didn't have to send anything back, and we'd give you a full return. It was an evolution of the current economic system, but not a revolution of the current economic system. And what we're looking for now is a revolution. This is the time of revolution. This is the time where the way that we've done things and small tweaks to the way that we've done things is not going to be sufficient. It's the time for radical moves where we flip the tables over. And this fills me with energy and passion. And I'm excited to be a part of that and excited to have Arcadia be the first step, not only in ideology, but in the pragmatic and of course, risk, the unique risk that offering this provides in which there's so much hard cost. I mean, we've never spent this much money on any event like we're spending for Arcadia because of the musical lineup. And these are some of the best musicians out there in the world that are all coming to perform and some of the best speakers. And so this is a unique risk. Will this work? I believe it will because I believe in you who are listening and I believe that the spirit of this will carry the day. And uh, I'm excited. I'm excited about the future. So thank you for listening to this. Once again, the last podcast I did with Zach Bush and this podcast are part of an eight-part series that we're releasing to attendees to Arcadia. These two obviously were released to the general public, but all of the other conversation talking about different vectors of what this more beautiful world will look like are going to be made available for for all the Arcadia attendees. So if you're part of this revolutionary event, then you're going to get access to all of that. And if you come to the event, you're going to be participating in a revolutionary act, a part of the more beautiful world. And man, it's going to be fun. It's going to be so fun to be there in Alpine, celebrating, living, dancing, breathing, participating in community and tribe and reciprocity and joy and bliss, the antithesis of the deadness of the universe, the way to revivify the life force that really changes everything. It's a step into an alternate reality. It's seeing the world through the eyes of love and possibility. And that's what we're going for. And it depends on all of us coming there and creating that reality, and I believe that we will. In fact, I have no doubts. So for those of you coming, I can't wait to see you there. And for everyone else, I love you madly, and I look forward to continuing to share the ideas and ideologies about how all of us, no matter what events we attend or don't attend, that we can just carry some of this ethos in our own hearts, because that is what will change the world. So once again, if you're interested in attending Go to fit for service slash Arcadia with a K A R K A D I A and check it out.